And so, Jesus, we ask this morning that you would, that, that you would help our hearts to be that place that is good soil, soft and fertile for the seed of your word. Lord, you have something that you want to say to every one of us this morning, and we just invite your spirit to speak to us. We pray that individually, that your spirit would uh, just give us something directly from you for our lives. And so, God, would you bless this time? Would you anoint it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 14. Uh, we're going to continue on uh, in this gospel that we've been working through, the gospel about the kingdom of God and the king of the kingdom, King Jesus. And at this point in Matthew's gospel, we've, we've come to this place where what we're going to see start to happen here more and more is that Jesus is going to be withdrawing from the crowds. He's going to be pulling away to get alone with his disciples. And the idea is this, is that as we've seen, there has been this growing hostility to Jesus, hostility from his enemies. And there is also a need for him to begin to prepare his, his disciples for his, his death and his resurrection and his departure. And so in these next number of chapters, we're going to watch Jesus as he begins to withdraw. And so let's check it out here, uh, Matthew chapter 14, read, read verses 1 through 12. It says this, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. And so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry but because of the, his oaths and, oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and he had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Of course, we remember uh, Herod from Matthew chapter 2 when we got started in this series. He was the one who slaughtered all the male children aged two and under uh, when he heard that a king had been born in Bethlehem. Now, this isn't the same Herod that we read about here in Matthew chapter 14. In fact, that Herod in Matthew 2 was Herod the Great. This Herod that we read about is Herod that is referred to as Herod Antipas, and he was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, when he passed away, the Romans took his uh, area of rule, Palestine, and they divided into four parts, and they, they set these individuals called tetrarchs over one-fourth of those areas, and Herod the Antipa Antipas was set in rule over one of those sections of the, pro of the province. And in a sense, I guess, Herod wasn't a king in the true sense of the word, Herod Antipas. He wasn't... Um, bloodthirsty in the same sense that his father was. When you read about Herod the Great and all of his history, one of the things you find out about him is that he went through about eight or nine wives. He'd just kill them. Kill any of his children that seemed to threaten him. Herod Antipas, 
had gone through the whole system and was now leading and in power under uh, the Romans. And he was different from his father, you know, where his father was this bloodthirsty, ruthless leader. Uh, Herod Antipas was a little bit more of a weak-willed kind of man. Easily frightened, as we're going to see here. Superstitious, obviously. Um, cunning. But he was a man who was enslaved to a life of luxury, enslaved to a life of sensuality. And the first thing that you notice about Herod when you consider this passage is this, is that Herod was a man who was living with a guilty conscience. Did you get that sense, right, as you read it? That he had murdered John. John the Baptist had spoken openly and honestly about Herod's unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. Murder had not eased Herod's guilty conscience. Hadn't, murder hadn't brought him freedom. He murdered the voice that spoke truth so as to silence it, but what continued to speak was his guilty conscience. And you know, no guilty conscience. A guilty conscience is like a voice that's never silenced, isn't it? When you have one of those. Not silenced until it's surrendered to Jesus. And so when Herod heard about the fame of Jesus, he actually said this, really superstitious. This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. You know, when I think about him and I think about the guilt that this man is packing, you just have to see that, that the conscience in our life is a very powerful voice that God has placed there. It can be the voice of, of God to those who will listen. And so Matthew uh, gives us some history surrounding John's death. He says this, that, that Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And John had been saying, it is not lawful for you to have her. Uh, held in a dungeon, they believed that, that John was held in the dungeon of, in the fortress of Macarius, this place where Herod would hide out on the east, east side of the Dead Sea. You know, think about John. John was a man who had lived in the wide open space of the wilderness, right? Clothed in camel's hair and eating honey and, and locusts, the, the bold prophet who lived in the wide open spaces. The man who had announced the Messiah's coming. The man who had announced the nearness of the kingdom. And he spent his, his last days in this dark, enclosed, damp, I imagine, dungeon. And we read about Herod and Herod's relationship with John. It's kind of odd, like the other gospels fill in the picture a little bit, that, that though Herod hated John's personal rebuke against his life, the other gospels tell us that he also liked to listen to him, that he would bring him out of prison. He'd bring him out of the dungeon and have him preach for a while and listen to him. And the problem that John was pointing out in Herod's life was this, that Herod was married to Herodias, his brother's wife. And the story is this, is that Herod had gone to Rome where his brother was, and he had taken a liking to his brother's wife. And so he got rid of his own wife, stole his brother's wife, and the whole situation, he had just gotten away with it, and, and John was confronting him, saying, that's not right. What you're doing is not right. You're in a position of authority. You know, you're, you're supposed to be someone who's, Who's, who's noble, you got to have a stronger will and stand up against what's wrong than, more than that. And, and so because John was 
pointing this out in Herod's life, he imprisoned him. But there was this same, at the same time, the same sense of intrigue that Herod had with John. And so all that sitting and, and listening to John with intrigue, with sort of fascination, really didn't do Herod any good. You know, if you think about it. The gospel of the Lord Jesus can almost be handled in the same way. You know, we can sit and listen, be intrigued about Jesus, kind of fascinated about him. You know, Jesus did not come to just pique your curiosity. Jesus came to save you. He came to save us. And simple fascination, just interest, isn't enough to save you. You have to surrender your life to Jesus. And when you contrast, you know, Herod and Jesus as kings, when you think about them, you have to realize that where Herod wasn't a king in the true sense of the word, in fact, he never even had the title. He fought to have that title with Rome. And finally, the Romans got so fed up with him that they sent him into exile. They sent him to Gaul eventually and France and then to Spain. He fought to have that title. He wasn't a king in the true sense of the word, but Jesus is a king in the true sense of the word. So much so um, that the, the way that we are to really respond to him, to treat him, is not with that distant fascination, how Herod was sort of treating Jesus and John, but we're to, we're to draw near, the scripture says, that we're to come with awe and we're to worship him. And so in regards to Herod and John and this whole relationship, John had proclaimed to him the truth about sin and the truth about Jesus, and Herod imprisoned him. And he just stayed in this place of intrigue, fashion, no, uh, uh, fascination, no, no heart transformation. Verse 5 says this, and Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. And so he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. I think about Herod and Herodias. They're kind of uh, cut from the same cloth as a couple we see in the Old Testament, Ahab and Jezebel. Remember them? And all the uh, trouble that happened with them. Herod was a a weak-willed, licentious man who was really uh, controlled by a woman who was bloodthirsty and shameless in the way that she lived. A woman who would even send her daughter in to dance before a room of drunken guests, you know, drunken men. On Herod's birthday, not only did she, you know, teach her daughter to, to live that way and to act that way, but she taught her to ask, ask for murder. Can you, I mean, do you think about that? Can you imagine a mom sending her kid in and doing that? Like, go dance before drunken men, ask for murder, and employing her child for these tasks. You know, I, I, I don't imagine that This girl was a child. She's probably a teenager, but she is a picture of womanhood corrupted, really, by her own mother. What what kind of chance does she really have? And and so Herod, in his drunken sensuality, just promised her whatever she asked, whatever you want, you can have. And it says in verse 8, that prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. So Herod gets trapped by his words. You ever felt trapped by your words? It's happens, it happens to us all. And you know, one of the things we should learn from, from Herod is this, is that when something that we're sorry for, for proceeds from our lips, rather than following through, just say, look, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I changed my mind. 
I changed my mind. This is wrong. I won't murder the prophet. But he couldn't do it because he feared people. He feared their response. He had uttered a foolish promise. And he wasn't sorry enough to actually do what was right. And so he sent and he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter, given to the girl, disgusting picture, and she brings and she gives it to her mother. Um, you know, I think about a world where a man like Herod sits in luxury and, and celebrates and lives this life of revel and where a man like John lies headless in a dungeon is a world that needs a savior. Don't you think that? That's a world that needs a savior. It's a world that needs someone to set things right. You know, legend actually says that Herodias, when the head was brought to her, took a knife and she stabbed his tongue. She stabbed the dead tongue of John the Baptist. But the voice still spoke. You know, stab his tongue or not, the guilty conscience still rung true. And John was a voice that pointed people to Jesus and his voice still speaks, still speaks. He could not and he will not ever be silenced. Verse 12 says, And the disciples came and they took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. I, I actually think as I was reading this and looking at this passage and studying it, I think that verse 12 is probably the best bit of practical truth you'll draw from this story right here. This terrible account of John's death. The disciples came and they took the body and they buried it and they went and they told Jesus. That's a pattern for life right there. The best thing you can do ever, any situation is go to Jesus. To go and to tell him, Tell him about your sorrow. Tell him about the news that devastates you. Tell him about your loneliness. Tell him about your disappointment. You might even say when you're mistreated. Just bury that wrong. Appreciate what Tammy said this morning, encouraging us to forgive. Bury that wrong and just go tell Jesus. You know, one of the things that, that as human beings, we're, we're, it's so normal for us to just advertise, you know, we've been wrong. Hey man, this person did this to me. They wronged me in this way. And we take opportunities to announce the things that have been done to us, broadcast how we've been mistreated. You know what these guys did? They, they buried John and they went and they told Jesus. And when you go to Jesus with those things, you, you never go in vain. It, 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 it's never a waste of time to take those things and to go to Jesus. Now, verse 13 says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When we read that Jesus uh, withdrew by boat to a desolate place, I, th I think that it's in the entire context of all that we've read so far. You know, Herod had killed John. He had heard of Jesus' fame. He superstitiously believed that Jesus was John raised from the dead. And it's just put it all together. One plus one equals two. Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And he was going to seek to do so. And so with mounting opposition, it was time for Jesus to start this withdrawal in a certain sense. This increasing withdrawal to lonely desolate places, not, not to be inactive, but to have focus in his ministry. 
But often what would happen is, and we see this here is that the crowds followed Jesus and he wasn't able to remain alone even when he wanted to, even when he loaded up in a boat. Can you imagine you get it in a boat? Like take a hint, everybody, I'm going sailing. And the crowds heard it and they followed him on foot and they went to the places wherever he was going. Let's check it out. Actually, we'll read on here. It says this, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came and said to him, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have fi only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to, his disciple, to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Great story. This, this account of the feeding of the 5,000 plus is told in all four Gospels. And, you know, if you just think about the previous story that we read, what a contrast from Herod's banquet to the meal that Jesus lays out for his guests in this wilderness place. It says that, that when he saw the great crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Yeah, I mean, you have to love that the multitudes that came seeking Jesus were never seen as an inconvenience to him. You know, no impatient smiles from Jesus. <laughs> no grit your teeth smiles. Oh, it's great. It's good to see you. You know, none of that from Jesus. No, no frustration from Jesus. Isn't that great? You know, even this morning, you think about that. Jesus is not frustrated with you. He's not impatient with you. You, you come to seek him this morning and he's going to turn to you with compassion for those who will call on him. You know, no, you, you know what the Lord has promised? He's, he's promised this, that when we call to him, he will answer. That's a promise of his word. And I, I just think about this intrusion that's almost happening for Jesus. You, you know, you think about your own life when you're, when you're seeking times of solitude and you have intrusions. Jesus was experiencing intrusion, but his response was compassion. His response was to, to heal the sick. And Mark's gospel tells us that he saw the crowd as a sheep without a shepherd. So he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, verse 15, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to, into the villages and buy, and buy food. Jesus has his eyes where? His eyes are on the crowd. The disciples, where are their eyes set? Their eyes are fixed on the clock. Gotta go. Gotta go. Got things to do, Jesus. We've had enough of these people. And they saw a problem. They looked at the clock. They saw a problem. This is a desolate place. It's late in the day. The crowd didn't think ahead to plan a meal when they joined us. You know, the closest 7-Eleven's a ferry ride away. And, and so Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And that statement from Jesus was really 
spoken to cause the disciples to take an inventory of their own lives, to take an inventory of their resources. What they were going to discover was that they had in, inadequate resources, but that Jesus had everything that was needed for this situation. And, and all true needs of people, I mean, really, the true needs of human beings, the true needs of every man and woman can be met by Jesus Christ. We have to believe that. That he satisfies the deepest needs of mankind. You know, the, the, the desires of your heart can only be answered in Jesus. That should be the proclamation of the church. That should be the experience of our life and the proclamation of our lips. That, that's not a declaration that everything's easy. When just, just add Jesus and everything's easy. In fact, what we're going to see in, later in this chapter is that the disciples are going to go into a stormy voyage. Even with Jesus. Even with Jesus in their lives. But the thing is this. A life without Jesus, it ends in shipwreck. And the answer for your desires are found in Jesus. Satisfaction of the soul. Contentment of the conscience. Happiness in your spirit. The answer for our desires is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in people. It's not in money. You know, it's not in food or drink. It's not in substance. It's not in possessions. It's not in experience or relationships. It's found in a person. The very things that every one of our hearts desires is found in a person the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are, as we're going to see in this text, we're, we're to regard him and we're to treat him like the king that he is. Not with that distant fascination, not just with a heart that's kind of intrigued by him, but with awe we draw near and we worship him. And from that place we find satisfaction of soul. From that place we find contentment in our conscience. From that place, we find happiness of spirit. And so as Jesus challenges these disciples, they, they, they take an inventory of their own resources. And one word sums it up. It's insufficient. We only have five loaves here and two fish, they say. You know, in the kingdom of God, knowledge of our own inadequacy, knowledge of the fact that we're unfit, Knowledge of our, our weakness is the first condition to discovering true adequacy. It's the first condition to discovering the fitness and the strength of Christ that can be made manifest in our lives. And so if the first step is to know that you and I are un, unfit, if, you know, if, that we're weak, if it all ended there, that's just discouraging, right? That's just would lead to us shrinking back into cowardliness and, and, and into that weakness and shrinking back. And um, no, the first step is this. We recognize weakness in our lives. We recognize inadequacy in our lives. But the st second step is this. You put what you have, all of your weakness, into the hands of Jesus Christ. For we can do all things, the scripture says, through him who gives us strength. Put the weakness you have into the hands of Jesus be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And Jesus said, Br bring what you have here. Bring it to me. Put it into my hands. 
And we put it into Jesus' hands and we let him decide how he's going to multiply what we have for his service. And so Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. I love that picture. The great shepherd of the sheep leading them to pasture. Leading them to a place where there's food, a place where there's provision, a place where there's rest. You know, that grass made a better better couch than anything Herod had to offer in his palace. The guests were seated and dinner was served. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing. He broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them uh, to the crowds. I, I, I love that picture that the disciples placed what they had in the hands of Jesus In the hands of the Lord, he broke it and he put it right back into their hands and said, go serve people. Go serve them. It's it's just like the Lord had done for Moses, if you think about it. When Moses kind of argued with the Lord and said, if I go to Pharaoh and I go back to Egypt and I say, you know, the Lord says, let my people go that they will worship me. You know, how am I going to prove that you've sent me? And the Lord just said to Moses, what's in your hand? What was in the hand of Moses? A staff, and as insignificant as it was, it was to be laid down before the Lord so that it could be made useful in the service of the Lord. The disciples gave their fish and their bread to Jesus, their inadequacy. It was broken and it was put back into their hands and they went and served. Verse 20 says, And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 basketfuls of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Everyone satisfied. One basketful left over for each of the 12 disciples. Just, just to drive home the point that when we put our inadequacy in the hands of the Lord, he can provide more than enough. 5,000 men we read here besides women and children. So, you know. Add it up. It's got to be a crowd. You got to think it's a crowd of at least 15,000. Can you imagine? Remember we just fed a thousand people maybe at our pig roast and the work that was involved. And these 12 men are distributing to a crowd of like 15,000 people. And there's more than enough and everyone is satisfied. We had more than enough too. You're going to be eating pork for a little while. (laughs) You know, this miracle taught, teaches us some things about Jesus, right? It's a revelation that Jesus is the bread giver. He's the food giver. Jesus is the channel through which all flows. He is the arm of the Lord in that sense. In him, all things move and live and have their being. He sustains all things by the power of his word. Jesus is the, the bread giver. But this miracle also revealed that G, to the crowd that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. The other day I went, uh, I, I was hungry. We, ha- we hadn't had dinner. It was kind of late, later in the day. And uh, so I went to Subway. Eli and I went to Subway. And uh, usually when I go there, I'm, I'm one of these guys, I I'm, I'm try to practice some self-control. So I'm like, I'm only having a six inch, only have a six inch, okay? So I go in there. But, you know, the other night I was really hungry. <laughs> and it was past supper time. And so as I stood in the line, I'm like, I'm having this argument with myself. No, you, you, six inches enough. Don't, you don't need a foot long. And, and then I just decided, I'm giving in, man. I am having a foot long sandwich tonight. 
And I ate that whole thing and it was really good. And I needed the bread to sustain my life. I mean, you know, I don't want to be too dramatic, but I was starving to death. And, um, you know, when we call Jesus the bread of life, it's not in the same way when we speak of, you know, a Subway sandwich. A Subway sandwich sustains the life that I have. But when we say Jesus is the bread of life, what that means is this, that Jesus is life. Bread, physical bread, sustains life. Jesus is life. And so we have to learn to feed on Jesus because he is life. We have to learn to feed on his word, to feed on his love, to feed on his grace, to feed on his forgiveness, to feed on his truth, to, to feed on his blood and on his body and feed on his redemption and feed on the cross and feed on his resurrection. Our souls have to learn that the Lord is our portion and that his body is true bread and that his blood is true drink. Jesus is the bread of life. And so this is this whole miracle is unfolding and the crowd is fed and everyone is satisfied and there's all these leftovers and the disciples are learning this lesson to take their inadequacy and to put it in the hands of the Lord and watch him multiply it. As the whole day begins to, the meal begins to wrap up, it says in verse 22 that immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. The other gospels actually tell us that at this point, Jesus knew that the crowd intended to take him and make him king by force. The crowd recognized that Jesus, at this miracle, they recognized that Jesus was the one Moses had spoken about, who would give bread from heaven, manna. There's the, the picture from the book of Exodus, bread from heaven. And rather than have the disciples caught up in the frenzy, rather than have the crowd get out of control, Jesus sent the disciples off in one direction. He sent the crowd off in one another direction, and he himself went in another direction. Check out verse 23. We'll read through here. It says, And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. What? Walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart as it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Disciples head off onto the Sea of Galilee. Jesus uh, finds some time alone. He goes up onto the, to the mountain. Uh, 
to pray and to spend some time with God. And those of you who have been to Israel, maybe you get that picture in your head. You can see some of those mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee. And uh, from there, Jesus is looking down on the lake, and as he's praying, he can see his disciples. He can see them out in the middle of the lake, straining at the oar. They're facing a storm. The wind is pounding. The, the waves are pounding. The wind is blowing hard. And he prays. Jesus prays. And I, I love this picture because the, the Bible tells us that Jesus lives forever to make intercession for us. We say, what was Jesus praying for? We have to believe that he was praying for those disciples as he's watching them down in the midst of the storm. And in the same way, Jesus looks on your life and he looks on my life and, and he prays for you and I. And you have to think that Jesus is up on that mount. He's watching this whole scene. He's spending time in prayer. And we have to believe that from the top of the mountain, Jesus could have just simply stopped the storm, couldn't he? Could have commanded the wind and the waves to cease as we saw earlier in the gospel of Matthew. But there was something greater at work. He was, he was doing something in their lives. This was a, a loving method that he was using to train these men. He was training them to stay on task, even though he personally wasn't present with them as they were so you know, accustomed to as they were doing the work of the ministry. But these men are in a storm. And you think about some of the difficulties and the storms that we, we face in life. You know, sometimes God sends things like that to make men out of us, so to speak. You know, this is the opposite of Herodias' training of her daughter, in a sense. This is training. The disciples are out on the water, and this is, do not swerve to the left or to the right. And those disciples pressed on as Jesus Prayed for them. I, I believe he was praying for their perseverance. He was praying for their strength. He was praying that they would obey his word. They were, he was praying that they would continue in that place of trust. And verse 24 says, but, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Wet and weary, you know. Straining at the oars. Beaten by the waves. The wind was against them. You know, this summer when my... When my brother was here, uh, we went out into Seashell Inlet in our little Zodiac and we had a great day fishing and the water was like glass. And he said to me, man, my wife has never got to do anything like this. I'd really like to take her out. So we planned, we took our wives out in the little Zodiac. We left the kids behind with grandma and we went like too far up the inlet. <laughs> and the wind and the waves got started. And, you know, we were in shorts and t-shirts and it was a, overcast day like today and it all picked up and we ended up having to ditch out into several coves and you know we were supposed to be back at one we got back at six and uh it was a little you know it was just I was feeling like a bit of an idiot for not being responsible and uh we we were cautious but you know we were wet we were pounded by the wind and the waves and it was like this reality man it's like yeah it's July we could die out here we could still be hypothermic. And here's these disciples out in the middle of this lake. They're getting, they're getting pounded by the waves and the wind. You, you just picture the waves coming right over uh, their boat and they're straining at the oars. Doesn't life feel like that sometimes? Just The waves are pounding. The wind is blowing. You're straining. Just straining in life. It's just like, 
God, if I could just get through today, through this hour, let alone today, through this next five minutes. And I want to point this out about the disciples because I, I, sometimes I'm just quick to bash these guys. You know, the easy thing in their situation would have been this. Give in to the forces that oppose you. Just surrender. Be driven by the wind and the waves and go tuck out in some cove and rest up until it's all done and then do the easy paddle across the lake. Get back on track later on. But these men, Jesus had told these disciples to go to the other side of the lake. And so, though they faced opposition, though they faced opposition of wave and wind, they obediently stuck to the course to which Jesus had called them. The easy thing to do was to surrender to the opposition, to surrender to the darkness, with waves breaking over them and wind howling against them. You know what those men did? They dug in. They dug in and they continued on that slow, steady pace in the same direction. And I really believe it was Jesus praying for them from the top of that mountain and their loyalty to Jesus that kept them in that place of peril. Oh, we're going to keep working. We're going to keep going. Though the wind blows and the waves pound. And I, I, I just think of, you know, many of those heroes of faith over the centuries, you know, missionaries, different people that have stayed in the place of peril because of their loyalty to King Jesus. Convinced that God had called them to do something. Convinced that they knew the calling of God upon their lives. And so they went to that place or they stayed in that ministry when other voices said, give in, it's too hard. You're putting your life in danger. You're doing this, you're doing that. They stayed on the oar in the direction that Jesus had called them. Now, I've really been enjoying Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains to the gospel. And whether those were literal, they were, they were literal, but they were also figurative in a sense. See, Paul willingly shackled himself to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the gospel of Jesus and so when we think about these disciples out in, in the middle of the lake, let's not think too lowly of these men. Love bound their hand to the oar. When fear taunted them to succumb, obedience said, head for the shore that Jesus said to row to. So we're going to be obedient and we're going to keep going. And so in verse 25, we read, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Walking on the sea. Like, let's not get too familiar with our Bibles, okay? Jesus is walking on water. Walking on the ocean. For him, it was like pavement. All the circumstances that the disciples were struggling against were already under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. To him, it was solid footing. Everything that was causing their heart and their minds to go in all the directions that they were going were beneath the feet of Jesus on solid ground for him. And when you follow Jesus, one of the things we see in this is, is there's no guarantee of smooth water when you follow Jesus. No soft sell of the gospel here, man. It's not easy to follow Jesus. You want ease? Pick something else up, man. 
Go do something else. There's no guarantee of smooth water. Jesus isn't, you know, he's not prophesying aqua waters of the house sound, which don't look so aqua today. And 70 foot coastal crafts and all the, you know, that's not Jesus. You know, often storms come. Storms in life come when you serve Jesus. And they often come in two forms. There, there are storms of correction and there are storms of perfection. Think first of storms of correction. You know, who, who's the bi- biblical example of that? It's Jonah, right? Jonah. He's the man in scripture who found himself in a storm of correction because he had moved outside of the will of God's, uh, the will of God for his life. And when we're out of God's will, when we're out of God's plan, when we're out of God's leading in his direction, God can send a storm to get us back on track. A storm of correction to discipline us. That storm for, in Jonah's life got things spun around. Got headed back in the right direction. There are storms of perfection. Those are storms that, that Jesus sends to develop us. That's the kind of storm that these disciples were out in. They had been obedient. They hadn't done anything wrong. Really, they had done nothing wrong. In fact, they're coming out of a season of incredible mystery. They've just fed 5,000. Incredible blessing has been poured out. And now they find themselves in a storm. And Jesus was, was, I guess in a sense, he had taught them. And now he was testing them in regards to the things they had been taught. I've been with you. And, and now I want you to exercise your faith by going through a storm. And, and faith is developed in struggles. Uh, you, you know who blow, blows me away? Is Debbie Ware, man. The way God is just in the midst of this storm with Neil, her faith is just like, wow, just at the oar. And faith is obeying in spite of consequence. It's staying on the oar no matter what happens. Faith says, uh, I'll do what the Lord says, even if it means I have to go through a storm. I, I'm going to stick on that oar. And the disciples had just come through this, like I said, this incredible time of ministry, feeding thousands. And then this storm comes after this season of great blessing. And verse 26 says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. A number of years ago on one of our uh, CTK men's kayak trips, uh, we circumnavigated Gambier Island. Jerry was on that one. Remember that, Jerry? Anybody else was on that one that's here? I don't think so. And uh, we bit off a lot for a three-day trip. That was too much paddling. Jerry's never came on another kayak trip after that one. Um, On the second day, we came around that southeast corner of Gambier that's closest to Horseshoe Bay and the wind was coming down the sound. And it was like, you know, you don't realize sometimes, you just, we ride the ferry and I know we whine about the ferry, but we also take it for granted. Those waves are big, man. It was like, we're paddling. It's like, hey, Jerry, wait, where did Jerry go? Hey, Jerry, where did Jerry go? And, it, and we were just disappearing. I mean, There's about 10 of us and it's just appearing, disappearing up and down these waves as kayaks would disappear into the valley of the two waves and then rise back up. And they'd be like, hey, where'd that? Oh, there he is. And, the, and this is going on. And that's exactly what's happening on the Sea of Galilee. It's like, did you just see something? I thought I saw something. Did you just see a man walking on the water? 
I don't, you know, imagine, get in the heads of the disciples here. It's like up, down, up, down. they're in the valley, Jesus on top, it's back and forth. They're like, he's appearing and disappearing before their eyes like crazy. It's no wonder they think that there's a, a ghost on the water as Jesus comes in and out of view. And it wasn't exactly what they're expecting, right? A man coming walking on the water. And so they thought they were seeing a ghost, and I think that that was pretty legit. And they cried out in fear. And you know, the stormy sea in, in scripture is this symbolic picture of chaos in the world. And what a great picture of Jesus. He's got it all under control. He's just walking on it. It's a revelation of his divine power, of his nature as the son of God. And so when they cried out, Jesus spoke to them and he said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. You know, the consciousness of the presence of the Lord drives out every fear. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Where it's just, you're overcome by fear, you seek the Lord and his presence comes and every fear is driven out by his presence. You know, without Christ, it's appropriate to fear. You should be afraid. You should be very afraid if you don't have Jesus in your life. But the reality of his presence is the foundation for being a fearless person. You know, sometimes I think we don't do enough in our lives to make sure that we've secured the presence of God. Secure the presence of God in your life. You know, his presence drives out fear. So we need to secure his presence. We need to start the day in the word of God. We need to start the day seeking him in a, in a time of prayer. Secure the presence of God so that when the storm comes, your hand stays steady on the oar. You already have your directive. Now it's just following through in obedience. And these guys, in the, in the midst of all this storm, they, they think that they see this ghost, but a word from Jesus and fear is driven out and Peter does something totally unexpected. It doesn't make any sense. It's just coming right out of his mouth before, you know, it's just Peter. It's Peter. Peter said, answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. What? Okay, Peter. That's pretty creative in the moment. Obviously, this is fear instantly gone. Do you see that? You did not do that. You don't say, tell me to get out of the boat and I'll walk. He just thought he saw a ghost. The presence of the Lord Jesus drove every fear out of his life so that he was ready to take a step of faith. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and came to Jesus. I, you know, I, I, I read this and I just wonder, what the heck was Peter thinking? <laughs> what kind of response was he expecting from Jesus? But Jesus just gave one word and it was this, come. But he probably waved, come on. <laughs> and Peter walked on the water. He put one leg over the edge of the boat. He swung his hips and he got the other foot over and he stood up on that water and he began walking towards Jesus on top of those waves. And you think, how does that happen? How does that work? How does Peter do that which is impossible? And I'm, I, I just think when you read the writings of Peter, 
Peter is a man who began to grasp this in his life, that we, as we serve Jesus, become sharers with him. We become partakers in the divine nature through faith. And this is a, a, a further picture um, that, we, that we have about Jesus, about how he invites us to enter in. I want you to turn with me for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 1. Towards the back of your Bible. Just before Revelation. It's getting hot in here now, eh? You going to make it? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. These are awesome verses. This is Peter, I think in a lot of ways, describing what happened in his life that day. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That day out on the Sea of Galilee, Peter partook in something that was unnatural to him. He partook in divine nature. And he entered in by faith. By faith he participated. Jesus said, come, and Peter came. He said, I trust you. Because your presence drives out fear in my life. So if you say it, then I'll do it. You've secured my faith by your presence. So I'm going to step out in the boat and follow through on your invitation. See, by faith, we participate with God. By faith, we become partakers in the kingdom, the realities of the kingdom. By faith, we enter into an economy that's out of this world. And Peter was kept up by the power of Christ. Oh, but he sunk. Yeah, but nobody else got out of the boat. I mean, just forget that he sank. Just like forget that. That's a whole nother lesson. Nobody else got out of the boat. There were 12 other men. Peter got out of the boat. No reason to mock him because he was doing what no one else did or has ever done besides Jesus. Walked on water. But verse 30 says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. To look, what we learn is this, to look at Jesus keeps faith in proper exercise. It keeps faith strong. In that sense, you know, looking to Jesus keeps faith working, keeps faith in its sustaining power. And Peter's problem was that when he began to look away from Jesus, probably a little bit of pride, I'm the only one out here out of 12 walking on this water. Who knows what it was, but his eyes began to look away from Jesus and he began to see the, the wind and the waves and terror came back into his heart and the power began to go and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter cried out, Lord, Lord, save me. And the word that should be underlined in every one of our Bibles is this, immediately. (laughs) That's Jesus when you cry out to him. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he took hold of him. And every time you cry out to the Lord, his love overlooks your unbelief. He lays hold of us with his hand and he reassures us with his presence and he gently rebukes that unbelief. Doesn't rebuke the risk that we took or for daring for the kingdom too much. But he rebukes risking and daring too little. Oh, you have little faith. You risked so much to get here and we walked on the water together. You know, we can't dare too little for the kingdom. We can't risk too much for King Jesus. And then they got into the boat and the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. You know, the only circumstance that mattered in the midst of this whole thing was this, that now Jesus was in the boat and everything else was taken care of. When you read in the other gospels, it says here that the wind ceased. The other gospels give this idea that immediately they found themselves on the other shore, that they arrived. I don't know if it was like something changed and God's time continuum and he just got them there or whether they were so overcome with the presence of Jesus that they just stopped thinking about time and next thing they know they're there. But whatever it is, they were so focused on the fact that Jesus was there, they were just on the other shore. And this storm... This storm was really designed for a purpose. It was designed to to bring these men to the feet of Jesus to worship. It was designed so the, the storm was sent from heaven so that these men would say, truly, you're the son of God and I worship you. And you know, I don't know where you're at in your life, what you got going on. But any storm that ends with you worshiping Jesus is a storm that's worth going through. It's a storm worth going through. You think about your life and the storms God's brought you through and how you ended that storm on your knees before Jesus saying, thank you for getting me through. Thank you for your presence in my life. I couldn't have done this without you, Jesus. Any storm that secures us worshiping Jesus is a storm worth going through. And I really think that that's the whole thrust of this entire text. See, it's all about, you know, the the entire epoch, pinnacle, summit of life. No greater purpose has a man or a woman than to worship King Jesus. That's what you're designed to do. That's what you were born for. That's why your heart beats so that you would learn to worship so that you would learn to bow at his feet and know the fearlessness that comes from his presence and the faith that is born in that place. Whatever you're going through today, Jesus is seeking to secure your worship. Jesus is seeking for you to bend the knee and say, I worship you, King Jesus. I'm not going to stand back in fascination and intrigue like Herod. I'm going to enter in and worship you like the king that you are. Verse 34 says, And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men at that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region 
and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched him as and as many who as touched it were made well of course, we've seen the woman. Remember the woman who pressed through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and she was healed? We, we saw her a number of chapters back. I love this picture. It's a good spot where this scripture closes because I don't think I'm ever going to walk on water. <laughs> you know, I don't think you're going to. I have a friend that tried. Didn't work for him. But you know what I feel like I can do? I could touch the hem of his garment. Now, I may never be in the place where it's like, get your feet out of the boat and walk on the water. But when Jesus is present, I can always touch the hem and experience that presence and that power and its healing in my life. You know, I say, I'm not Peter. Yeah, but you can be one of the crowd that touches the hem of his garment. And so this morning, not, not far off fascination, not the intrigue, but the drawing near to touch, to secure the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, to have him drive out every fear in the midst of storms so that we can follow him in faith and keep our hand on the oar. Amen? Amen. Would you guys stand with